My name is Anthony Fatsis and welcome to the What The Finance podcast, where we interview finance, trading, investing experts to help you understand current market trends and learn about the intricacies of new and existing assets. Hello and welcome What The Finances to another episode of the What The Finance podcast, where we talk to experts to help gain a greater understanding about what is happening in the world of finance, investing and markets. On today's podcast, I'm happy to welcome David Rubenstein. Uh, and let's be honest, David probably doesn't need much of an introduction, uh, but he's the co-founder and co-chairman of the Carlyle Group, one of the world's largest and most successful private equity companies. Uh, he's also the host of the David Rubenstein Show, which is a peer-to-peer uh, conversations with experts around the world and author of the upcoming book, How to Invest, Masters on the Craft, which is releasing in a few weeks on the 13th of September. So David, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. So uh, my first question is, what was your influence for writing the book? Well, what I wanted to do was to um, take advantage, I guess you could say, of my ability to get prominent investors to be willing to talk to me. I know many of them. I've known them over the years. And so I thought by interviewing the best investors, I could show people what it takes to be a great investor, but also to kind of give some of my own investment ideas and tips to people as a result of my 35 years in the investment world. While I wouldn't claim to be a great investor like the ones I interviewed, I do have some knowledge of the business and thought I could help people with um, navigating some of the shoals of the investment world. Yeah, I was in, I was interested because I looked back at so you because you released quite a few books, but um, you know if, if we look at them, there's the American Experiment, How to Lead, and the American Story. But this is really your first investment book, if I'm not mistaken. So that's correct. Yeah, why did it take so long? You know, because you've had such a, <laughs> a successful career in investing. I was quite surprised. Um, well, I don't know. I I wasn't sure that uh, the world needed an investment book by <laughs> me, but uh, eventually uh, my publisher thought that this would be a good idea, and so I dug into it. And I did have uh, the ability to get to a lot of good people to invest. Now, um, I really focused on American investors. Um, I, for a number of reasons, didn't do focus on global investors. So had I focused on global investors, I would have had a lot of people in the book from London, for example, or from uh, Hong Kong or other places in the world. But this is mostly focused on people in the U.S., though they do invest outside the U.S., for sure. And was there a reason for that? Um, it's just uh, the, the the physics of getting it done. I mean, it was easier to get interviews done with people that I knew, and I knew more people in the U.S. Also, you know, it was just um, a, a question of uh, ha- whether a book like this would meet, meet an audience. If it does meet an audience, then I would probably do one on investors from around the world because there are a lot of great investors, as you know, in Europe or Asia or other parts of the world. But let's see how this one goes. Yeah, exactly. There's too many great investors uh, around the world that you, you've interviewed already. Uh, so as you mentioned there, the book is focused on interviews with some of the best inv- investors. Um, you know, As someone who's very successful, I guess, what motivates you to continue to talk to these people and, and interview them? Well, I'm only doing things at this stage of my life that I'm interested in doing. I don't really need to make more money, fortunately, and I'm basically giving away the bulk of my money. But I doing things that I find intellectually interesting and keep me uh, my brain active and interviewing is something, as you know, as an interviewer, that keeps you on your toes. You have to be prepared. You have to listen to what a person says. And, you know, I don't know whether it keeps uh, Alzheimer's away, but it does keep me sharp. It's a great way to, uh, I think, almost force yourself to actually do research and keep reading. And then especially if you're interested in it, it makes it so much easier. There's no doubt that uh, preparing for an interview, as you do and others do, requires you to do some reading and preparation. And I think it's probably a pretty good uh, brain exercise. And um, so I I do, as you suggested or in the introduction, I do have a TV show where I interview people. 
And I do that there fairly regularly. And I've been doing that for about eight years now. And that I find it to be intellectually interesting. And you get to meet a lot of interesting people that way too. Yeah, definitely. It's a added bonus to the business. So do you think it's really important to share this investment knowledge as well? Because I guess there's lots of issues with you know a wealth divide, and I'm sure there's multiple reasons for that. But I think financial literacy and understanding investing is a vital aspect of that. So do you think that's really important for people to continue to share uh, their knowledge? Well, for most of organized history, people did not have excess money to invest. So it wasn't a big deal. And when academic standards were being put together in the early part of the, let's say, the 19th century or the 20th century about what one would study at universities like Cambridge or Oxford, investing was generally not something people would focus on. You would do uh, different kinds of subjects. Now, there are business schools where presumably you learn something about investing. But as a general rule today, many people have more money than they uh, need for their daily lives. And so they want to invest it to create more wealth in the future. How they do that and whether they do it properly is something I think is important for people to uh, know, know more about. Yeah, and you could say the cost of capital as well has come down to the point where the returns are actually higher a lot of the time than the cost of capital. So it means that there's that opportunity there, the sort of that arbitrage potentially. Yes, yeah, so like right now, most people in Western societies probably have some kind of pension fund of some type. They may have some money they invest. How do they do it? I don't know. Um, many people have uh, been trained, but most people probably have not been trained to make good investment decisions. And what I was trying to do is to say, look, read this book and you're not going to become Warren Buffett. You don't become uh, Tiger Woods by reading a book on how to play golf, but you can get inspired to learn more. And what I was trying to do is to target this book to three types of people. One, students who might consider investing as a career. Two, the average person who doesn't really know how to do deals or invest but we'll pick somebody to do it for them, investing in funds. And then third, people that think that they would like to try to do investing in themselves, pick the stocks, the bonds, the real estate, and do it themselves. And I try to provide some insights for all those different types of people, using, again, as the role models, the great investors that I interviewed. Yeah, definitely. And you know, one of the things that I saw at the start of the book that was quite interesting is you mentioned the traits and skills that you thought encapsulated a lot of the people that you actually interviewed uh, throughout the book. So I'm not sure if you can mention a few of those. That's about yes. you. Uh, if you go to any uh, category of human endeavor, uh, so sports endeavor or medicine, there's always going to be people at the top and there are always going to be people at the top who have similar characteristics. The similar characteristics that I found in investors who are great are one, they uh, tended not to have uh, uh, a poverty-stricken background. By and large, they probably came from uh, really good blue-collar backgrounds or solid middle-class backgrounds. They tended to have a really good facility for numbers. They tended to be well-educated. They tended to uh, have a great intellectual curiosity. Uh, they tended to um, want to make final decisions themselves. They loved to read about anything they can get their hands on. And they also were willing to defy conventional wisdom. And if they make a mistake, they're willing to you know, slough it off and go on to the next thing. And it doesn't you know, bog them down. So those are kind of the characteristics. But the most important is going against conventional wisdom. You can always go with the conventional wisdom or take the path of least resistance, but that will not make you a great investor because great investors are making bold decisions, just like great entrepreneurs are making bold decisions. That's what you have to do. And if you look at your career, is that something that you think uh, helped yourself because you started, you know, you were a co-founder of a PE firm very early and there weren't too many around? Well, I wouldn't say I'm a great investor. <laughs> I, I brought people into my firm who actually had investment experience and they became much better as a result of the experience of doing what we do at Carlisle. My role at Carlisle over the years has probably been to 
uh, think of new areas to get into, strategy, raise the funds, uh, recruit people, things like that. I did sit in several thousand investment committees and gave my views, and maybe sometimes they listened to them and sometimes they didn't. But I did learn a lot by osmosis. If you sit around investment committees for 30-some years, you'll, you'll learn a fair bit. Yeah, so you're more the ideas, the big ideas person. I would say I, I tried to build the firm and I had a strategy for building the firm, but I had partners who actually knew how to invest and they oversaw the investments day to day. Yeah, and something as well that really struck me in the book is just consistency. And if you look at a lot of the people you interviewed, they've just they weren't just successful in a short period of time. They were consistent over 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So do you think that's important as well? There are very few instant successes in the investment business because you have to make some mistakes along the way to learn. And so when you make mistakes, uh, um, you have to you know, pick yourself up and get back into the game. And many of them did that. And they all like to talk about the deals that they made mistakes on or the ones that got away because I think it shows a certain humility. And I think people there who are great investors generally have a fair amount of humility because they realize how difficult what they're doing is. Yeah. And I think you mentioned a few in your book and I've heard you mention them before. And, uh, you know, if we use some examples, there was Facebook that you said you heard about when uh, yes. Mark Zuckerberg was still at <laughs> at Harvard. Uh, and I think you said you sold Amazon shares quite early as well. So is that's that correct. really, yeah. So that, that's a vital thing. Just if you miss out on the opportunity, don't dwell on it. Cause I'm sure we've all been in this place where we missed out on buying Bitcoin or something else we heard. And- we always hear about the fish that got away from the fishermen. And I guess uh, investors like to talk about the, the deals that got away. And generally people like to talk about the deals they didn't do, they should have done as opposed to bad deals they did do. But I've had many deals that got away because I didn't have the, the brilliance to figure out that Mark Zuckerberg was going to build a great company or Jeff Bezos was going to build a great company. I just didn't see it. Yeah. And another trait that I remember is it's just uh, making sure that you live to fight another day. So if you're investing, try not to, if you lose, make sure it's not everything you have, basically. Right. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't put all your money in one deal because if it goes south, you're, you're out of business. So try to diversify. And those are some of the tips that I try to give people in my uh, introduction. Yeah, definitely. So if we look, um, you, you mentioned it's also separate up, separate up into quite a few different sections. There's sort of the traditional investing, there's the alternative right. alternative investments as well as uh, you know the new exciting uh, sections. So, but I thought it was quite interesting that the alternative investment uh, section was actually the largest. Uh, so, what do you think really attracts people to that section? Well, well it was probably the largest because that's the business I've been in, so I know more people there probably. Uh, but I think that it's an area that has grown enormously in recent years. The traditional investments are stocks and bonds and maybe real estate. But alternatives are venture capital, growth capital, buyouts, distressed debt, things that people didn't do historically. But now the returns have been so good for the last 10, 20, 30 years in these areas. Now, now they're almost part of any portfolio. If you go to any endowment or any, uh, uh, let's say, family office portfolio, they will have a fair amount of their their money in alternatives, so-called alternatives, maybe as much as 35% or so, 40% in some cases. And you think that's just been because they've been quite successful over the past 20 or uh, 20, 10 years? Well, the returns have been very good. So maybe the returns may come down, but the returns have been very good in these alternative businesses for so long, in part because you get a lot of smart people working in those areas. They're highly incented. They get 20% or if not more of the profits. And as a result, you do tend to attract a lot of uh, highly motivated, very smart people. Yeah, in my opinion, what I've seen, you know, just from 
you know, interviews I did with companies and as well in the industry, there's massive focus now on long-term. So it's not just, you know, before it might've been five or 10 years. Now people are thinking, you know, generations sometimes for investments. I know I, I talked to a charity and they were thinking a hundred years time for their investment sphere. So do you think there's just like a lot of these uh, trusts and a lot of these funds have a lot more money and they have that long-term period as well? Well, a lot of the trusts and endowments don't need cash day-to-day for their operations or not much cash. So they can afford to invest for 10, 20, 30 years and not have to get cash back, whereas some investors need cash back every couple of years or so. But if you have a long-term investment horizon, it gives you two advantages. One, you don't have transaction costs associated with selling something. And two, you don't have to pay taxes on it. Now, many endowments don't pay taxes, but for the average investor who pays taxes, if you hold on to an asset for a long period of time, you're not paying taxes as it accretes and, 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 and uh, increases in value. Yeah, and it's you don't realize until it actually happens. Where if you're going in and out of a trade, you're paying, you know, depending on where you are, 20, 30, 40, 50 percent sometimes of That's those right. profits. Whereas if you stay in for the long term, you're, you know, you're going to pay at the end, but you're not losing it over the over that period. And Warren Buffett is a perfect example of that he doesn't like to sell most anything he has, and he has compounded at terrific rates of return over some sixty years, and the result of that. Uh, is he's probably the most respi- respected investor in the world, and I dedicate the book in part to him. Yeah. So um, if we go to the third section, there's a lot of new and exciting, uh, I guess, investment opportunities and new okay. asset classes that have come onto uh, the market, which I'm sure lots of young people are interested in. Um, are there any at the moment that really stand out to you? Well, the most interesting uh, and controversial, of course, is crypto. I have interviewed one of the best investors in there, Mike Novogratz, and. Uh, you know, obviously, crypto is up and down, and there are people in the book who hate it uh, and don't invest in it. There are some people who swear by it. Uh, I think it's not for the faint of heart. You really have to know what you're doing and be willing to lose some money uh, because crypto, I don't think it's going away. It's not going to be uh, a steady accretion of value. It's going to be very, um, I would say, episodic and up and down a lot in high, high, high swings one way or the other. Yeah, I, th- I feel like that as well as other asset classes, we've seen there's been a, uh, you know, you could say financialization. So a lot of them are, you know, they, they still move in tangent to the markets and what's happening in the economy. But obviously, the volatility is going to be different depending on the different asset classes. Do you think that's becoming uh, more common? Sure. Um, you know, obviously, people focus on what central banks are doing and what the economies are doing because that affects stocks and bonds and all, every kind of asset. Crypto may be a little bit disconnected from that to some extent, but crypto is a bit of a technology and it kind of trades in in conjunction probably with technology values. Uh, When the technology meltdown began in May of this year, uh, all of a sudden crypto went down as as well. So it's probably associated with And also remember, a lot of people buying crypto are younger people. They tend to have shorter attention spans. They want to, to get in and out of markets regularly. And so it's a different type of uh, of investment horizon than maybe Warren Buffett has. Yeah, I think sometimes we want to make money very quickly, and then you might get that real bad loss, and you realize, hang on, it's more. We we need to focus on the long term. Well, look, and when you go to gambling, let's say Las Vegas or or um, you know Monte Carlo, you're going to go and see uh, people losing money. Why do they go? They know in the end they're going to lose money because there's a pleasure in invest in in, in gambling for some people. They have a pleasure out of it. They like to win money, but when they lose it, they kind of chalk it up as a good experience. The same is true on crypto. A lot of people go into it knowing that they might go down to zero 
and lose everything, but they like the charge of it. They like watching the numbers go up and down. They like being at doing something that's considered modern or au courant. So it, it has a certain type of similar pleasure to gambling. Yeah, definitely. I think that's uh, quite quite important. So, you know, you you, meant, you talked to so many interesting uh, guests uh, throughout the book and, you know, you've um, you've talked to a lot more throughout uh, your, your your investment, sorry, your interview in Korea. Uh, but for the people you interviewed with the book, is there anyone that really left a lasting impression, even though I guess they were all... Well, in <laughs> this book, um, a lot of people left uh, lasting impressions. There's one person who actually is in London. I counted him as an American investor, uh, but that's David Blood. He's an American, but his firm, ES, uh, in Generation Investment Management, is based in London, actually. And he focuses on ESG, which is to say investments that are uh, doing well in terms of environment, social responsibility, and governance. And his point of view is that if you focus on ESG, you will outperform the market. And his firm, which is co-founded by Al Gore, former U.S. vice president, has actually outperformed the public markets by about 500 basis points, which is a lot since the time of their inception. And do you see that becoming more of a trend where there's more focus, not just, I guess, on the alpha that you're making, but also the impact that you're having? Well, a year ago, people would say ESG is the wave of the future. Because of what's happened in Ukraine and the concern about the ability of people in Europe to get energy supplies and people in Europe more worried about getting energy supplies rather than not so much whether they're renewable or not, increasingly people are criticizing ESG-focused um, perspectives because they think it is, is short-sighted and is, is not taking into account the need for, let's say, energy. We have to get carbon energy um, uh, until we can get renewables uh, used, and therefore many people are criticizing ESG as a false standard because it, it is convincing people you can focus on environmental things and not worry about things like the energy you need day-to-day to heat your house. Yeah, so you think there might be a bit of a shift in the short term, but right now there is there is a shift going on right now in some parts of the U.S. and some parts of the investment market. Though obviously a lot of investors still believe strongly in ESG and are not going to be diverted by what happens in Ukraine. David, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I guess my uh, pleasure. No problem. And my last question is: uh, What is one message that you'd like investors, uh, you know, listeners, or even readers of your book to take away? Investing is not about greed and just making money. It's about allocating capital in ways that helps help the country. So the people that allocated capital to Moderna, for example, the venture capitalists, did a great service because they helped build a company that produced a vaccine that saved a lot of lives. So I think it's a good social thing if you have good investors allocating capital in a good way. I think that's a great message to leave with. So, David, thank you so thank much. You. Uh, My we've- pleasure. We've talked about your book, uh, How to Invest. So that's released on the 13th of September. And where were the best place? Is that available everywhere? I think you know, any bookstore or Amazon, uh, you can get it. Okay. Perfect. Awesome. I'll put that all in the description below. But thanks again. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe so you're notified when new podcasts are released. I hope you're leaving with some great value about investing, trading, and finance. See you on the next show.